You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Claudia Cummings, longtime friend, incredibly respected, and currently the president and CEO of the Indiana Philanthropy Alliance one of the largest statewide networks in the country, created to boost philanthropy's impact in communities throughout its state borders. Claudia also has a distinguished career in local government and at the United States Attorney's Office, and we're going to talk to her about that. Our co-host is CEO, Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Danielle Shockey. Danielle, thank you for joining us. And Claudia, it's nice to see you. I've known you a long time. I'm very aware of all the amazing work you've done and very pleased to have you on the podcast. And I should thank Mr. Ty Gehrig for arranging this. Yeah, Ty is a great friend. And Robert, I was trying to think earlier when we first met and I have no clue. I just know that it was um, a while ago, shall we? I, I believe I can tell you. Oh, show me. It is inspector training for the November 1998 elections. <laughs> wow, that's very specific. I would have been there. <laughs> How do you know this? It was the public assembly room. I just started working at the uh, sheriff's department just out of uh, graduate school. And it was the first time I'd been an inspector. And I was thinking, I signed up. I didn't sign up to do this. I was told by Russ Tuttle and Larry Logsdon, you are doing this. But for $110, I have to do all this and work all these hours. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your experience in the elections because uh, I have some of the same experience and how uh, putting on the elections is the single worst job in local government that doesn't involve a firearm. Now, let me tell you, I, I worked for Bill Hudnut, and in Bill Hudnut's mayor's office, we always sought out opportunities for service, and running elections is one of the most noble and most fundamental opportunities for service there are, and I am going to dispute your claim. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, please, please do, and uh, Danielle, as always, ladies first, take it away. Thanks, Robert and Claudia. Great, great to be with you. And I think this is a great show already as you're as you're kicking it off by disputing Robert. That makes for good uh, for good for good uh, sound quality for our listeners. Somebody needs to give it back to him sometimes. Yeah, so I need, well, yeah, I can give it to him. <laughs> That's awesome. So it's funny um, since you and I have never met in person. We've already talked about that off air. But I went to high school with Ty Gehrig. So there's our uh, six degrees of separation. Excellent. Yeah, I know. Small world. So talk, tell, tell our listeners, and I, you, again, you have a great career history and so many different things we might want to talk about, but let's start with where you are today. And you've been there since 2019 as the CEO and president of the Indiana Philanthropy Alliance, but that probably doesn't mean something to everybody. So explain to us what, it, what is um, the Indiana Philanthropy Alliance and, and what, what's its purpose? Yeah. 
So the state, so the Indiana Philanthropy Alliance is a statewide network of foundations, corporations, and we like to use the term other social impact investors. And there's a lot included in that. It's everything from government agencies to individual philanthropists to um, those that re-grant funds, all kinds of organizations that are focused on utilizing assets to make improvements to Indiana communities. So we do that by kind of the standard stuff an association would do. So we advocate for issues that are important to our members and to their communities. We educate our members about trends that are happening out in the field um, that can be informative to their work. And then we bring them together for collaborations and um, other kinds of teaming opportunities. Fabulous. Okay. So you're, you're a membership organization. Would that be a fair statement? It is. Okay. And so your members are community foundations as, as one such group as the community foundations. Correct. Okay. And I think I read somewhere that Indiana is unique in this space with either the number of community foundations we have, or the fact that every County has, what is the, what is the stat of what makes Indiana stand out in this yeah. way? We like to say that we have the most community foundations in the nation. Now, there's different ways to constitute them. Um, some folks, some states do it differently. But in terms of having one in all 92 counties, separate and distinct organizations, that is, in fact, unique. And we're the only ones that have that. Yeah, being um, in a nonprofit space that I am, Indiana is such a giving state. Um, I think it's one of those places if you ask for help, somebody is going to say, how can I help you, which is phenomenal. Um, I'd be curious what other ways. So I'm thinking about Lily, for example. And when I talk to my peer CEOs and Girl Scouts across the country, they're just amazed by the amount of opportunity Um again, for support in our community. Is you is Indiana that unique or is it because Lily makes us so unique or is it more of a collection of just really generous, um, you know, generous people? Yeah, well, we have, like I said, when I kicked off the description of who is amongst our members, it's not just foundations and corporations, but it is a group of others as well. So I think we are a generous uh, community and a, and a generous people here in Indiana. It's one of the things I love about being here. Folks are engaged and invested. But Lilly Endowment, hands down, is one of the most remarkable philanthropic institutions in the nation, I believe. Um, and one of the reasons you, you led with asking about our community foundation network, um, and the reason that they exist is because Lilly Endowment seeded them in all 92 counties. And so um, I think that's an incredibly um, visionary method for deploying uh, funds and resources out throughout the state. I think, um, you know, by doing that, the endowment is able to um, help communities in the way that those communities need to have assistance. So what happens in one place is very different from what happens in another based on size, geography, what their economy is, et cetera. And the local community foundations are best positioned on the ground to be able to effectuate that work. So for, again, listeners who may not understand kind of the dynamic of a community foundation. So we have, you know, Central Indiana Community Foundation, CICF, and Hamilton County. So every county kind of has, again, their own. Who sets the priorities within a community foundation? Because you kind of just mentioned they each have their own flavor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they each have their own board and their own leadership structure. So they're all um, independent. Um, but from time to time, uh, they have opportunities through Lilly Endowment to pursue particular threads of work. So, for example, right now, they're engaged in what they call the GIFT 7 initiative. GIFT stands for Giving Indiana Funds for Tomorrow, which is the mechanism through which the endowment uh, provides the funds back out to the community foundations. And GIFT 7 is unique in that it focuses on community leadership. 
And so it provided planning period and planning resources and now an implementation period for the community foundations to work with others from throughout their counties to identify needs and strategies um, and to put together projects that they are now implementing. And they range from everything from reducing recidivism to training young people for jobs, to quality of place initiatives, trails and other things of that nature, downtown, town square kind of redevelopment work. Um, you name it, there's 92 different flavors. Sure. Thank, no, it's a great answer. I appreciate that. So if I'm, um, if I'm wanting to give, why would somebody um, find it attractive to give to a community foundation, which does kind of spread their resources across a variety of, you know, um, areas of foci, why would I choose that versus giving to maybe just, let's say the Girl Scouts um, of Central Indiana, just, and, and many people do both, of course, but is there a benefit to, to um, supporting a community foundation over a one nonprofit or particular project? Yeah, well, if I were to give to the Girl Scouts, which I always like to do by way of cookies, <laughs> but if I were to give to the Girl Scouts um, in cash, that would be something that would meet an immediate need, most likely at the Girl Scouts. Most nonprofits don't um, have endowments. Some do, but most don't. Um, when you're going to a community foundation, that's something that you would invest in for a significant period of time or in perpetuity so that your gift has the opportunity to continue to impact your community for a far distance into the future. Perfect. Great distinction. Although I will say, I think that's one other way Indiana is unique because Lily is so generous. Girl Scouts, for example, has a $7.5 million endowment because of their generosity. So I do think we are, again, blessed beyond measure in Indiana because of that. Has, um, how has the, how has the, how has the global pandemic, I think I have to ask, impacted the work of the Philanthropy Alliance? Yeah. Well, our work, I mean, in those early days, it was just trying to stay one step ahead of what our members were going to be needing. So we um, we're pulling together calls with state health officials, with our congressional delegation, with experts in everything from public health to um, ethics. I mean, we had, I remember one of our calls, we had in some ethicists from Harvard to talk about, you know, how do you make choices? Because it was really tough at the beginning. Looking at it now, we know that, um, a significant portion of what was initially a downtrend in the economy mattered, managed to rebound rather quickly. But um, at the time, we didn't know what would happen. And so um, those were our early days. And then we have teamed up with other associations here in the state. So again, you, you started out by talking about the generosity of Hoosiers or this willingness we have to pitch in. Um, there's a number of um, community actors that are consistent across the state, like chambers of commerce, economic development agencies, um, cities and towns, counties, you name it. Um, all those folks all have associations, membership associations, just like IPA for philanthropy. And so we as associations started meeting and developing tools and webinars and things to um, help our members work together collectively back in the communities. Um, and so we spent a good amount of time investing in that way during the pandemic. I, just so many different things that we've done um, to help our members weather the storm and um, continue to be the stalwarts that they are um, for Hoosiers in times of need. How about just in terms of trends? Have you found giving has increased, decreased, remained the same? I know, you know, some federal, you know, changes in giving and just what, is, what are you seeing in trends in terms of, and then I think trends were starting to kind of um, maybe change the way we were all strategizing about, about seeking, you know, support through philanthropy. And then there was a global pandemic, but are there other trends that you're kind of tracking and concerned about for the future? Huh. Well, um, there are trends that are happening um, for sure. Uh, so we know from a recent study that came out from CANID, which is a national data gathering organization in philanthropy, 
um, that um, during the pandemic, we've seen $12 billion awarded specifically for COVID-19. We know that um, corporations were about 44% of that funding. We also know that in terms of the number of grants that went out, about 54% were from community foundations. And um, we also saw private foundations double their giving during that time. So there, there is definitely a lot of growth. I'm looking forward to, we also partner with Canada for an Indiana study. So we're waiting to get those results um, back to see what has happened um, in Indiana specifically. But for certain, there has been a, a large increase in giving that has taken place. Um, foundations which traditionally might only give the required 5% of their endowments each year um, exceeded that uh, strategically during the downturn. We also saw an acceleration of the adoption of concepts that we term trust-based philanthropy. And those are, um, those are, and that's an approach to how grant makers interact with their grantees. So for example, providing more unrestricted funds. Um, if you provide more unrestricted funds, uh, organizations have the ability to make payroll, pay rent, um, or, and or continue to sustain um, the programs that they have as is needed at the time, rather than providing funds only to the program and not for any of the necessary overhead. Um, bringing uh, grantees in more as partners and consulting with them about what their needs are in, in a myriad of other things. Those were all significant changes that took place um, during the pandemic as well and things that I think will um, likely stay in place moving forward. I do think, and you don't have to comment on this, and you know, again, our community uprising to support everything that we needed to support in terms of basic needs with COVID were so very critical, but it did swing a bit of the trending in giving and grant priorities to a space to support that, which left other opportunities for what in the past may have been same grant dollars to organizations that maybe aren't basic needs um, structured. It, it, it's created a gap. And so I wonder, so I'm, I'm just, I'll be curious to see what happens next. If it will kind of swing back to, to, to the middle, back to the, to the, the history of giving that we used to have. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that a good number of our members did in the pandemic, because they recognized that, you know, not just basic needs, but even arts organizations or organi other types of organizations um, were all going to struggle because, um, they had to cancel their events. A lot of nonprofits uh, earn their annual um, overhead off of their events, things of that nature. So a, a number of our members just gave more money to their standard grantees, just off the top without being asked, um, sent out those checks, kind of um, recognizing uh, the level of complexity with regard to the work. But um, for sure, there was a, a good amount of focus on basic needs because we all remember those lines of folks just trying to get food. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And we've had some great partners in our community who kept all of us abreast on those things, United Way and others. So that's, again, commentary that's not necessary. Talk a little bit about advocacy, public public space, whether that's federal or state advocacy that your organization handles, and what is that typical focus? And obviously, I get it changes every year, depending on probably a whole bunch of factors. But when we think about advocating for policy change, do you have some priorities there you want you can share? Yeah. Um, well, we um, recently changed our approach to public policy since I arrived. So at first, we worked only on issues of importance that impacted the um, industry itself. And we've recently stepped out to things that are important to the communities that our members serve. And so uh, we had adopted... Uh, pre-pandemic, uh, a focus on broadband. So little did we know that broadband internet would become such um, a need and such a topic. And so it was a good to work with members of the General Assembly this year as they navigated the broadband issue. Um, 
We're also very interested in early childhood education. Many of our members recognize that um, education is um, an important part of resolving many of the um, issues that we have in our society. And so getting kids properly educated early on is important. Uh, workforce development, again, for a similar purpose. So um, those are some of the issues that we're working on in the community. And then right now, we are super focused on what's called the ACE Act, Accelerating Charitable Efforts Act, which was introduced by Chuck Grassley and Angus King in the Senate. And we are working to um, defeat the provisions of that bill, which um, seek to restrict charitable activities. Um, it's unfortunately focused or, or rooted in a belief, I find this hard to believe, I don't think many Hoosiers would think this, that those who are acting charitably are somehow um, also acting in their self-interest in a way that is um, not possible, um, not positive to the larger community. And so, you know, it seeks to restrict certain um, abilities for uh, private foundations to compensate executives, even though there's already those same, there's already restrictions in law that cover that. And there's already jurisdiction from the IRS. Um, it, for some reason, it, it seeks to separate those that are rooted, um, it, you know, led by a family into a different category. Um, it also uh, is seeking to curtail the uh, the donor advised funds, which are growing at a, at a very high rate right now, uh, you know, it, it believe the the bill attempts to have a carve out for community foundations at a million dollars, but a million dollars, a significant number of Indiana community foundations hold donor advised funds in excess of a million dollars, and that's just in the first thirty years of existence for most of them. And so um, to, to try and force payouts in 15 years, which is generally what it tries to do, is incredibly short-sighted. Donor advised funds were a huge source of, of, of resources in this pandemic. And if in 15 years we were to have another large um, tragic disaster like this, um, we wouldn't necessarily have the resources needed to meet those needs. Um, there's a number of other restrictions that the bill seeks that we think will have negative impacts on the nonprofits that are partners with our members. Um, and it could just generally have a chilling effect on giving. So if you can't tell, I'm kind of all wound up about it. Um, don't understand why anyone would want to at all impact the good deeds of philanthropic individuals and, and, and um, curtail that. But um, yes, so we're currently fighting very hard about that. If you see your member of Congress, please let them know ACE Act is bad news. Very good. Thank you. No, no. And you didn't even tell me to ask you that question. So I'm glad I gave you the opportunity to answer it. Um, so you mentioned this space. And so I'm curious, Indiana has the IPA. Do other states have similar organizations? And if so, do you collaborate across the country to kind of come together on, you know, similar issues that you want to take to, to you know, to the federal level? Yeah, we absolutely do. Um, we call ourselves a regional philanthropy serving organization, if you want to get into the jargon. And those regions are different in every part of the country. So we're a statewide. Our region is our state. Um, in California, they have three regional associations because um, it's such a big state. Um, out in the Southwest, they have one that covers multiple states. But yes, we all are um, engaged with one another and we belong to something called the United Philanthropy Forum. So this membership organization, believe it or not, belongs to a membership organization, the members of which are other philanthropic um, philanthropy serving organizations. And together every year we have something called Foundations on the Hill, when during a specific period of time, all of our collective members usually physically go to Washington, D.C., but um, the past year and possibly this coming year have done it virtually um, to talk about issues of common concern, as well as those that are specific to each individual um, state region, where there's also national PSOs sure. that focus on issues. 
All right. Very good. Very, very interesting. And so now I want to switch gears a little bit and kind of talk kind of back to the beginning of your career where you served and, you know, starting in the mayor's office and then other, you know, places in the state legislature and then the you know, Marion County clerk up to IDOA and then in, you know, into more of a, what I would say probably private. But my question really is, as you look back on your really amazing career um, from the time you graduated college to today, is there a thread or a theme of impact you are seeking in the jobs you the jobs you considered or the jobs you held? Yeah. Interesting. I you know, I, I definitely am driven by service. I was um, you know, raised in a family where that was really important. So I knew that that was, that was a thread, but if there, you know, if you look at, I've worked in healthcare, I've worked in criminal justice, I've worked in economic development. I mean, they all seem incredibly different, but in the end, they do all help contribute to society um, when um, resources are leveraged in the, in the right way. And so, um, you know, I guess that was maybe my motivation for, if I were to try and find a thread. Um, I love that I t- when I took this job, it was an opportunity to kind of have like the broadest impact ever because the areas in which our members work are vastly different um, and it's statewide and the scale is, is significant. And um, yeah, so it's it's just been... I've really enjoyed the work that I've done over my career. Now, again, it's a great career. And so my next question is kind of about, you know, in every career or every seat you sat in, you probably did projects, led work, led something of sorts. So my question is, what's what's been your favorite? As you look back and you're like, yeah, I really enjoyed that that thing I got to do. Well, I think I'm going to have to say back to the beginning of the podcast, it was leading elections. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've done so many really cool things, but um, I love, I loved working in the general assembly. I did. Um, elections were, the clerk's office was incredibly hard work. People don't understand how under-resourced local government is and how much is responsibility is placed upon um, them. Robert understands because he's been there, but um, you know, the running the the clerk's portion of the court work, child support, um, and of course elections. It, it was a lot, and I had a really great friend and mentor, Sarah Taylor, who I know has been one of your guests, who I got to work with and for, and. Um, that also added to that experience. So for sure, that's in, you know, the top three of experiences that I've had. Awesome. Well, it seems like a really good point since you mentioned, you mentioned Robert to kick it back to him for a little bit so he can have some time to chat with you too. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Claudia Cummings, who's done just about everything. But she's currently president and CEO of the Indiana Philanthropy Alliance. And our co-host today is Danielle Shockey, CEO, Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Claudia, is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you admire most? Wow. That is, I'm going to say Mitch Daniels. I mean, that might be an easy go-to. I don't know if all your, your folks say that, but um I call myself a Mitch Daniels groupie and I was so thrilled to have the opportunity to work in his administration. I think that the way he 
went about running state government was a breath of fresh air for sure at the time. And um, really something that was necessary to bring more business into government, um, to measure outcomes, to track um, progress. Um, it was something that in, to that point in my career, I hadn't seen done in that way in government. And I really saw um, improvements in the impact that that made. I was playing racquetball with your husband a couple of days ago. Was telling, <laughs> I'm sorry, David Taylor. I was referring to David Taylor, who yeah. I, I think is your second husband. Is this correct? This is what I was told. Yeah, Sarah lets me share him. If Michael <laughs> Rains, my actual husband, is listening to this, um, I love you dearly, but you know, you don't have all the husbands traditional husband things down like David Taylor once showed up in the middle of the night at my house with a plunger. So David Taylor is definitely my second husband. Um, and Sarah allows that. Thank you, Sarah. And the reason that I mentioned that is this is a question that I've kind of, or a, a, a line of discussion I bring up frequently with folks who have been involved in politics. And I contend even despite the modern insanity that politics is that you can meet some really really good people on both sides of the aisle or i guess since chris spangles listening three sides of the aisle if we count the libertarians has that been your experience that there's just a lot of really good people who are involved in politics and you may you may check a different box in the polling place but the quality overall is very strong. Well, I will say this, that one of the things that I loved about working in the clerk's office, um, it was the fact that I got to work directly and in a sustained manner with folks from the opposite party as we put on elections. One party can't put on the election without the other. And so I got to know a lot of those folks at a pretty fundamental level. And in the end, we're all just trying to do our best for our community and to um, see government work um, for the people. But what I might also say is though that was my favorite part of what made me love that experience. You know, when I look at how folks treat one another these days, um, it is different, at least from where I sit now. And I don't have the luxury of being in the city county building and, and working directly with folks that are representing parties and the party, party structure. Um, that may still be the same, but just folks who align with parties or ideologies, I think we all can, can see that we're not necessarily our best selves now with, with that regard. And folks are arguing and um, not cooperating. And I would like to see um, more of that for sure, more cooperating. So here's your chance to tell me I'm clueless. I should, I should actually uh, give one of these opportunities every single podcast. And sometimes I do with the historians, but we interview, but you were chief deputy clerk for Sarah Taylor, who was marrying County Clerk from 1995 to 2002. I believe I have my dates correct. Um, you were intimately involved with the running of the elections. Um, I was the chief election administrator for Sarah's successor, Doris Ann Sadler, and had to put on, I think, five elections. Um, I found it to be rewarding in the sense that you really get to understand exactly this this sort of grassroots level of democracy and and the parties do come together but it is a singularly difficult job where so many things can go wrong at every level the concept of a of a quote unquote perfect election seems to me to be um, a fantasy uh, what is your take on just the elections and what it was like to be involved and how it opened your eyes as to how much. And I know Wendy Davis, Wendy Orange was a uh, chief election administrator for a while. Uh, 
who I know knew from high school, but just how did it open your eyes? Like what in the hell do we all have to do to make this work? Yeah. So I don't know if you meant to go here and I don't know if it's wise to go here, but we don't have to talk talk politically. Um, I'm not going to talk about it directly, but I will say this. You're right. There's no such thing as a perfect election. Um, I also think though that the folks that are engaged in elections, um, in my experience, 99.99% of them are honest people who are just working their hardest to make something happen. Um, and I think that with the fail that we have, um, that there's no way anyone could steal an election. Um, so I will just go there because I feel like that was sitting there. But I also don't think the election was without error. There's, it's not possible. You're 100% right. I will remember this. Okay, I'm going to tell a story. And Sarah Taylor, she's listening really. In my, the way I feel like this is the Sarah Taylor show, right? <laughs> if she's listening, she's going to kind of like scream at me for, for telling this. But I am going to tell the, the story of the election of, would it have been 2000? It might have even been the general election. It was a general federal election. And it was towards the end, I think it was 2000, we had planned to, um, yeah, we just need to know how old is Evan Taylor and then do the math there. Or may, nope, maybe it was Adam Taylor. This might be true. I think it was 2000. Um, we had planned to replace the voting system. And let's say we had taken the off year of 1999 when there was no election at all and spent the entire time planning for the election. And we... I mean, planning for um, the new voting system. And we didn't think we were going to be using those old lever machines again. And we were asked to hold off and um, use the lever machines one last time. And we had like every failure you could think of. Um, We had uh, the tally system had some sort of glitch in it that night. Back in those days, you'd take the tallies off the back of the machine and you would, um, people would write them in a book and then the book would come downtown and then we'd have a team of people that would then key in the tallies and then teams of people that would verify the tallies were correct in the system. It was this crazy system that was required because of the lever machines. So the tally system wasn't working. Um, Sarah was at home uh, on bed rest with her baby um, that she was expecting, hence why I'm trying to age one of her children. Um, the, the house was going 50-50 and the control of the house was down to one district here in um, Indianapolis and in Marion County. It was Jim Adderholt and David Ortlicker. Mm-hmm. And we had the results trapped in our office I had not slept because the night before the election, we didn't have inspectors for all of the precincts. So you can't go to sleep until every precinct is scheduled to open. And we had not given out the keys to every polling place. So I had not slept the night before. And now this is the night of the election, like 3 a.m. All of these folks come in um, as watchers from the two sides because the control of the Indiana General Assembly is sitting in our office. Um, it was, I mean, there's news media everywhere. Um, I remember Amos Brown, rest in peace, Amos, he would kept coming to me every 30 minutes asking me if something fraudulent was going on. It was the most stressful. And I leave out that that day, during the day, during the election, live on TV, um, Julia Carson goes into cast yeah. a vote for herself. She pulls the, the Democratic lever and every single um, like vote falls on that Democratic line except for herself, her own. And she's live on TV. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. He's convinced that that was on purpose. It was the worst. I didn't sleep for 48 hours. The pressure was unbelievable. Um, it was just crazy. And so elections can go wrong. They can go monumentally wrong. Um, but in the end, I believe David Ortlicker won that that House seat. I believe the control of the General Assembly um, went to um, the Democrats that year. They were not my party. And I think we ran a, a good election fraught with flaws. It's 
kind of a crazy story that Sarah, again, is going to kill me for telling. And, he, and, and, and Ortlicker, as I recall, won it by what is it like 22 votes, 36 votes, something? I mean, it was that close. I can't remember the number of votes. I remember having to go to court for the recount and everything else. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal. The clerk's office does tons of things. What, other than the elections, which we just discussed, what was your, you were chief deputy clerk for Sarah Taylor. And I want to make sure to ask you how you met Sarah. Cause I think Sarah was working in the sheriff's office when she ran for clerk, I think. But what part of working in the clerk's office did you enjoy the most? Yeah, well, I, I enjoyed the camaraderie for sure. I enjoyed the purpose. I enjoy, I'm not answering your questions. I'm going to give you 30 things. Um, There definitely were nowhere near enough resources. And I enjoyed using my talents to um, leverage what we did have to um, provide good service to the citizens of Marion County. Maybe that last thing the most. What I noticed in the clerk's office is, and when I worked in the auditor's office at the state house is, you know, everyone, these overpaid government employees and their 57 holidays. I saw the vast, vast majority work their tail off every day to try to make people happy. Because especially in the clerk's office, sometimes people show up and they just are desperate for whatever reason. And I saw a whole bunch of, of amazing, caring people go the extra mile to help their fellow Hoosiers. Yeah, I think that's true. I remember when I very first, well, I'll tell you when the very first time I met Sarah Taylor, I actually didn't know her before I went to work for her. I was in um, an interview with her and um, I I went to interview um, my good buddies, um, Mike Murphy and John Keeler, who I, both of which I worked for in the General Assembly um, had um, suggested that I be good for the role that Sarah had and were ready to support me in moving forward in my career. And they'd set up this interview. And so I went and I remember the look on her face when she told me that, um, you know, our starting wage at that time, I think was $16,000 a year. $16,000 total per year, and that she had walked into a Taco Bell and one of her employees who was like, you know, a a valued member of the team was the person there serving tacos. And it was a woman who was in her 60s or 70s, like in an advanced age. And that really bothered Sarah. And I, I mean, that's a moment I will forever remember. And that's how I knew she was a good person, how I knew it was important to get the work right. Um, So, you know, and how I knew to um, really, really value um, every person that worked there. So many of the people that worked there qualified for Section 8 and Mm -hmm. all of the other um, services that are available in poverty. And yet they came to work every day with a smile on their face to provide services to the citizens of Marion County, um, who I'm sure didn't understand the poverty in which the person that was serving them was living. So um, anyway, so there's that as well. I don't know how much they get paid these days. I'm sure it's, you know, in in terms of actual dollars, it's probably quite a bit more, but in terms of, of relative dollars to inflation, I'm sure it's not that much more at all. You've worked in politics, you've worked in government. How close have you come? to put in your name on the ballot for public office? Well, I did it once, Robert. I actually mm-hmm. held a township board seat in Washington <laughs> Township. Um, a lot of folks <laughs> don't know about the township board, but that was um, my back in my glory days. I ran the, uh, the township board is the effectively, I guess, the legislative body mm-hmm. for the township and oversees at that time, the fire department, the small claims court, the trustees budget, the budgets for all of those things, poor relief. I think that was it. Mm-hmm. So, yep, the township board. Well, I was going to ask you, I, I believe I was running the election where you made it on the township board. But there was some talk that at one point you were going to run for clerk. Is it something 
a, a bigger, a higher elective office is something that you have ever aspired to? Or were you just like, man, I see what she goes through and the public scrutiny and the hours. And it's just not something that I think I'd want to do. I mean, Danielle worked in, in the state house for a statewide elected official. You know, you get that close to the person or the folks who get to make all the decisions. And you're kind of like, well, you know, maybe I could do something like that. But it takes a lot of courage to actually put your name on on the ballot. Yeah. Um, well, yes, I would say for sure. In my early days, I thought that was something I would do. I passed on the clerk's office opportunity because that was when we adopted our son and I wanted to focus on him. Um, a lot of women do that. Mm -hmm. um, they choose to sidetrack their career early in their career. It also sometimes impacts, I mean, women uh, when they want to come back because it's never quite the same track you were on when you left. I kept my professional, my day job, but um, my work within the party has just not ever been the same since that. Um, so I feel like that's like a dream that's kind of sailed, but you know, never say never. Claudia earned a bachelor of arts degree from Franklin and Marshall college and a master's of public affairs from Indiana university's school of public and environmental affairs. There's several people we both know who have gone to SPIA and gotten an MPA. How do you think the advanced degree took you beyond just your bachelor's degree to prepare you for the career you have now? Yeah. So do know a lot of folks, spions, we call ourselves. <laughs> yeah. And I know a lot of spions. We're everywhere. And um, I think it's kind of everything. So I went to one of those um, sit under a tree and think kind of liberal arts, tiny undergrad schools, which was really important because I needed to do some growing up and learn some independence and have some exposure to the world and kind of learn how to think and make an argument. And I think Franklin and Marshall, which is outside of Philadelphia and Lancaster, Amish country, actually, mm. I think that it was a really great opportunity for that. But when it came to learning how to run a business, how to manage staff, how to um, defend an argument with data, how to, um, you know, how to pass a budget, make a budget, and all of those kinds of things. I learned all of that at SPIA, and um, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. We have reached the point on the Leaders and Legends podcast where our guests are asked the five questions. And as usual, when she is the co-host, Danielle Shockey has them ready to go. All right. Very good. These are quick. Claudia, what was your first job? Yeah. So first job, um, Pizza Hut delivery. And it was, you know, thank <laughs> you for calling Pizza Hut delivery. May I have your telephone number, please? I remember this. And everyone would start with, I want a large pepperoni pizza. And my computer would not take that. I had to have your phone number. I did not work in a restaurant. I worked in a call center. So I never got to eat any free pizza. <laughs> All right. What about your first concert? Well, not 100% on this, but I think it was the U2 Joshua Tree concert tour, which everyone wanted to go to in 1988. We, it was back in the days when you would um, stand in line for tickets. And um, I was at Clues Hall all night getting my tickets. <laughs> That's pretty right. strong. That's yeah. a good one. Yep. How about um, a book you would recommend to our listeners, something you've read or are reading? Well, I would not be a good CEO if I didn't take this opportunity to plug um, John Mutz and his new book, which is, uh, I don't know what it's called, John Mutz's book. It's called something like John Mutz, a story or something. But if you Google John Mutz and his book, it's an amazing book. It talks about everything from Unigov to his time as Lieutenant Governor 
to bringing the Colts here in the middle of the night, running the Lilly Endowment, um, and starting Lumina Foundation. And the reason why I am plugging his book is because of his time as a philanthropist, both through organizations like the Endowment and Lumina, as well as his personal philanthropy. Um, he has been kind enough to lend his name as the namesake to the um, Mutz Philanthropic Leadership Institute, which is a leadership series that IPA has launched. Um, it's completing its inaugural year, and um, it is time for applications in, due in October. And so anyone interested in um, working at an executive level in philanthropy or being on a philanthropic board should absolutely um, sign up to participate in this. It's amazing to get to learn from John Mutz and the host of really great books that have signed up to um, provide knowledge to the, to the participants. Perfect. And you're right. You had to use this opportunity. That was spot on. Thanks for sharing that. Um, if you could witness, Claudia, a moment in history, be there and see it when it happened, what would the moment be? Ooh, a moment in history. I don't know. When you say history, I think of like Caesar on a horse or something. Oh, that could, that could be one. Um, <laughs> that, could, that could be one. You know, we went on vacation and we were at the Forum and we stood in the place in Rome in the Forum where they say that Brutus killed Caesar. That was kind of interesting. So I guess I could envision that. So maybe that's the first one that pops into my mind. Okay. And then the last question of the five, if you could sit down off the record for two hours and have a conversation with anyone who is, who's alive, who would you want to talk with? Anyone who is alive. Wow. These are hard. I told, um, <laughs> Robert, that I I knew the questions already and I had answers for all of them, but then I put them away because he seemed <laughs> disappointed and now I don't have any answers. Just say David Taylor. That's what everybody says. Everyone says David Taylor. Um, I've now found my notes from last night where I said Helen Thomas, because um, she's really kind of cool. The woman who um, worked for, I think, five, um, worked in, sorry, didn't work for him. She was with United Press International. She was on the press corps in the White House for like five presidents and um, first woman to get White House credentials. And I always loved her questions super spunky um and some of her books are really entertaining and interesting so that's who i came up with last night in the moment i got nothing all right very good it was great talking to you claudia back to you robert you have been listening to leaders and legends a podcast presented by veteran strategies a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by girl scouts of central indiana garmon construction Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our co-host has been Danielle Shockey, CEO, Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, and our guest has been Claudia Cummings, who, as I've said before, has done so many jobs and she's done amazing at him. I've known her for a long time. She's so respected and so well-liked. She is currently the president and CEO of the Indiana Philanthropy Alliance. Claudia, thank you so much for your time. And we really appreciate your answers and, and, and coming on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was actually fun. Yay. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.